Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ryan Thorpe, reporter at the Winnipeg Free Press. And uh, podcaster with CBC's White Hot Hate. Welcome to Shortcuts. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jesse. Ryan, today we're going to talk about the shadowy cabal of globalist elites who are controlling the world's economy in secret and who release fun, shareable YouTube content. Telling us all about it. Sounds uh, pretty spooky. Also... The abolition of women's reproductive rights, the mass murder of innocent people during a hate crime shooting spree. Tragedies, yes, but also, it seems, great opportunities to brag about how great Canada is. Glad to have you here where we talk shit about the news. Today's episode is brought to everybody by Dave Dolson, Chris Murphy, Yvonne Sue. Thomas Dedman, Stacey Boorman, Paul Park, Brian Bromley, and Lauren. Hi, my name is Lauren, and I'm a health educator living in Welland, Ontario. I support Canada Land because they are a news organization with integrity. I trust them to do their research and appreciate their deep dives into important issues. 
I really enjoy all of the shows like Commons and The Backbench, but Shortcuts is my favorite. I like listening to the conversations between Jesse and his guests, whether they are agreeing or sparring. And I really appreciate the duly noted segment. Thank you, Canada Land, for keeping me informed. And of course, for the puns in your weekly newsletter. Ryan, here's a piece in the Globe and Mail recently written by Campbell Clark. Headline is, the WEF conspiracy theory is in the conservative leadership race and Canada's main streets. I know that you spend a lot of your time as a journalist in the, like, fringier corners of the extreme right. Are you familiar with this World Economic Forum conspiracy theory? I am, yeah. Honestly, it's a bit similar to some other conspiracy theories that we've seen in the past. Um, But, you know, over the past couple of years, I would say I've um, heard more and more chatter about uh, the shadowy kind of World Economic Forum and, you know, the concerns that seemingly increasing numbers of Canadians have about, I guess, their influence on our national politics. I'm going to try to explain this theory to people as best I can. I don't claim to be any kind of great expert on it, but it's something that, like, I've noticed has been popping up more and more. Reporter Justin Ling, who also looks at some of the corners that you look at, says that this has become ubiquitous in recent days. And the first thing that struck me about it is, like, if the big conspiracy in the world is being conducted by the World Economic Forum, as far as like secret shadowy groups go, they're pretty damn public. They have a YouTube channel with uh, over 700,000 subscribers where they just sort of explain their ideas uh, through like, you know, high production, valuable, shareable videos. Let's hear a bit from this video called The Great Reset. We have an incredible opportunity to create entirely new sustainable industries, investing in nature as the true engine of our economy. The current global crisis has disrupted every aspect of our lives, but it has also presented us with an extraordinary opportunity, a chance to reset and accelerate efforts to improve the state of our world. What I love about this conspiracy theory is that it's sort of like reverse engineered because as I understand Davos, as I understand the World Economic Forum, it's not that dissimilar from like the TED conference, you know? It's a commercial enterprise that is heavily marketed, very slick, and which purports to be kind of this congregation of influential thought leaders where, you know, it's very expensive to go And they dole out these sort of status rewards of like who gets invited or who gets on this list or who's like a youth global leader. And they sort of want everybody to think. The whole purpose of this is like this is where the richest people and the ruling class come. And it's like a fun getaway in Switzerland. And like any conference, it's an excuse to go and socialize on somebody else's dime. But the kind of brand is this is where the powerful get together to make plans and to talk about big ideas. And the initial idea, as I understand it, is like, it's supposed to be a good look. The billionaires of the world and the politicians of the world are not just some self-interested group. They actually are interested in putting their minds together to solve the big problems. That's the feint, that's the gloss. But turning that into a conspiracy theory kind of turns it on its head. And it's a great conspiracy theory because there's no shortage of marketing materials that describe that exact thing. Like here they are, 
telling on themselves, explaining how they are getting together these elites, these rich people going to Switzerland to plan the world's future, when that is exactly what they're pretending to do. In fact, I can't think of people who are less interested in changing the world than billionaires. Like, the world's working really well for billionaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And um, I know that the World Economic Forum, at least in the, the context of Canadian politics, has pointed in the past to, you know, the number of cabinet ministers under the current liberal government that, you know, were identified as young leaders by the WEF. You know, it's a way of them to try and signal their importance and their influence, but it's backfired on them a little bit because now those precise things that they were trumpeting are being pointed to as evidence of this kind of conspiracy. And, um, you know, it begins with the Great Reset clip that you just pointed there, this video that they put out, which was really just kind of a call for progressive reforms and, you know, a a kind of moving towards more green economies. And then it just picked up steam throughout the pandemic. And it, it kind of morphs like a game of telephone where now the pandemic is a pretext for a radical agenda or or a takeover. But it, to me, honestly, it, it's not, this conspiracy theory isn't new. It's very similar to, you know, something we've heard of for like, uh, say, like New World Order conspiracy theories. And if you, you know, want to dive deep enough down into the history, you know, it leads back to some pretty common anti-Semitic tropes, I would say, about kind of, you know, shadowy Jewish cabal and financiers that are kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. Yeah, this is old stuff, Rothschilds, and, you know, that, like, you know, your your nation state doesn't matter, your politician's just a puppet, there's actually a a global government, a globalist government. It's Jewish bankers. That's the old story. And actually, there's a pretty Canadian inflection point in this. If you wanted to prove that this isn't just some like fun getaway where these people you know, high-five each other, but this is actually where they set the agenda for the world and the politicians are just their puppets, well, what do you know? Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau picks up on this notion of the Great Reset. Now, everybody with the pandemic was talking about, oh, this is not just a tragedy or this is not just a disruption. This is a great opportunity to, to, to solve some of the world's problems. Like everybody was talking about build back better. Here's Trudeau in November 2021 explicitly, it seems, picking up on the language from the World Economic Forum. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. If you want to, you could see that as evidence that like Trudeau takes his marching orders from uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, or you could see it as evidence that like Trudeau is just sort of lazy and borrowing his marketing and his terminology from uh, somebody else's PR campaign. Everybody's talking about this exact same concept, but through this lens, the conspiracy starts to confirm itself, and pretty soon you get like this guy, Aaron McNeil, on, on Instagram, and this is the conclusion that he reaches. Let's just say how it is, okay? If you don't know this by now, then... You've been watching too much CTV and uh, CBC and Global News and CB24 and all that stuff. You've been watching too much of it, okay? The Liberals and the NDP, they work directly for the World Economic Forum, okay? How they can get away with that is beyond me, but nonetheless, that's what's going on. That's what they're doing. And they're going to crush the economy. They're going to keep the federal mandates in place. They're going to roll out the digital identification system and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, the Trudeau clip you played, I mean, you know in advance what people are going to do with that clip, right? It's clearly, as you kind of point out, he's just cribbing language that 
you know, the, a talking point from other people and using it for his own purposes. But if you, you cut that clip, you isolate it, you know, you throw it in a video with some like ominous music behind it or something. And, um, you know, people are going to interpret it in a much different way. It, it makes me think of there was a famous speech that George H.W. Bush gave in the early 90s where he used the phrase New World Order. And um, he was talking about like, you know, just like a post kind of Cold War, establishing a post Cold War global order. But then that phrase gets isolated and handled the same way and pointed to as evidence of some sort of nefarious conspiracy that's going on among leaders. And, you know, it's no surprise that people in Canada are, are, are kind of moving in that, that same direction. It's utterly expected, I would say. Before we just sort of like laugh off these people, it's interesting to look at the world through their point of view, not to kind of like devil's advocate themselves, but like almost to like recognize how much of it is true just through a different lens. Like I'm looking at some of their literature, I guess. What is this new world order that they're afraid of that uh, the World Economic Forum is trying to impose upon us? It's a world in which the end of fossil fuels is imposed upon us. It's a world in which the struggling farmer isn't allowed to have grazing livestock anymore. The end of irrigation. Well, that's actually consistent. Like, that's true. There are plots to get rid of fossil fuels. There are plots to get rid of industrial farming. And, you know, you, you go through the whole thing that one world military. Well, I, you know, I guess you could call NATO like a move towards a one world military. Universal basic income through one lens is like a very necessary idea. Through another, it's it's another imposition towards sort of stripping us all of our autonomy, our ability to earn money, and, you know, making us all vaccinated and under some sort of social credit system. Everything that happens, whether it's environmentalism or towards campaigns for social justice, has this sort of shadow version of itself where it's something that's being imposed upon us by this global cabal to, I don't know what, I don't know what they would actually get out of this new world order like that they don't already have. It's the kind of conspiracy theory that will endlessly affirm and confirm itself. Now, that's the conspiracy theory as I understand it. And why I'm getting into it now is not just because the Globe and Mail has been citing it or because it's become so ubiquitous, but because of Pierre Polyev. Now, Pierre Polyev, like through any rational analysis of who this guy is. He came up under Harper, who attended the World Economic Forum in Davos. He works with John Baird, who attended the World Economic Forum. He is absolutely an establishment figure. The idea that it's just the NDP and the liberals who are somehow influenced by the World Economic Forum is just counterfactual. And any kind of concept of Polyev is, as like some kind of disruptive politician who's like going to shatter the status quo is like a head scratcher compared to his pedigree. And yet I saw him grilling Mark Kearney and calling him a Davos elite, right? He has been railing on very specific targeted issues like the Bank of Canada. Our central bank has been printing money to inflate prices. The solution is, of course, to fire the gatekeepers. I've already announced that I will fire the governor of the central bank to get inflation under control. That's why they've been doing it. They've been printing money to inflate crisis. The solution is, of course, to fire the gatekeepers. I've already announced that I will fire the governor of the central bank to get inflation under control. Now, of course, inflation is rampant throughout the world right now. And this notion that the Bank of Canada is trying to inflate crisis, like this all sounds very compatible with World Economic Forum conspiracy theory. Fire the gatekeepers. Without explicitly citing the conspiracy theory, this feels like 
it's you know a part of that conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. I, a few different thoughts on that. I mean, one thing in terms of Polyev's uh, attacks on the banks, I thought Andrew Coyne made a really good point in the Globe and Mail, where he looks like what? Okay, what are the actual proposals here? What is he putting forth? And when you you cash it out, there's really nothing there. You know, he's going to have their books audited. Well, their their books already are audited. He's now kind of stepped it up and is and is saying that he's going to fire the head of the Bank of Canada. I suppose that's one kind of tangible, concrete thing that he's saying he's going to do. But I think it's really just a convenient target for him. It's pretty much straight out of the, the kind of right-wing populist playbook, where it doesn't really matter if the solutions you're proposing are effective in any way. What matters is having the right enemies, you know, elites, bankers, traditional institutions of power, liberals. And that seems to be what he's doing here. And I do think he's kind of playing with fire. Like, I, I don't think he's, uh, he's not dumb. He, he knows what he's doing. I don't think he buys in to kind of these, you know, conspiracy theories, but he's leaning in a little bit. And I believe he's even said that under, you know, a Pierre Polyev government, his ministers wouldn't be going to Davos. Like, he knows what he's doing by making that comment. It's kind of a wink and a nod to um, these kind of fringier conspiratorial beliefs. And yeah, I think it's actually, it's, it's pretty dangerous in, in a number of different ways. I want to kind of describe the, the political theater that's playing out and just how savvy Polyev is. Uh, you know, you call him smart. I think he's like kind of a brilliant strategist in his ability to pick up on populist strains, but also to trigger the exact kind of responses from the establishment that perpetuate this idea without necessarily getting too deeply invested in anything that's going to explode. And, and you know, anybody, as we've discussed previously on the show, he can express fealty to the truckers and leave it to Jean Charest to say, well, that makes you a friend of racists. And his response is, well, I never said anything pro-racist, you know, and indeed he did not. He's very selective. So when he talks about Davos in a specific way, he's not actually saying there is a conspiracy of the World Economic Forum. He's just saying, uh, you know, that whole thing has a bad look. I don't want to be a part of it. And if I'm in charge, my people won't have anything to do with it. Similarly, when he talks about Bitcoin, well, if you don't want to have the Bank of Canada or like, you know, governed banks or currency that the government has any control over, then that's sort of what the cryptocurrency world is all about. So all of this is like, I don't know if there's like a word for a loud wink, like wink feels too <laughs> subtle. Like it feels much more, <laughs> we need a word for, for a loud wink. But, you know, the second part of this, Ryan, which is I think where the media plays right into his hands, like you're, you're right. Andrew Coyne is, is apt when he calls Pierre Polyev's rhetoric baseless and a dozen other people are correct. This is like a media criticism in which I don't actually disagree with anybody I'm going to criticize here, but the collective impact of the pearl clutching, the monocles popping out, like what he has inspired is like he couldn't have written it better himself. What am I talking about here? Let me just run through the headlines. In response to Polyev going after the governor of the Bank of Canada, here's what's been written. Uh, Globe and Mail, Campbell Clark. For Pierre Polyev, undermining the Bank of Canada brings an easy political reward. Andrew Coyne, Pierre Polyev's baseless campaign to restore the Bank of Canada's independence is in fact an assault on it. John Ibbotson, also in the Globe. Why Pierre Polyev should reconsider his rhetoric about firing the Bank of Canada governor. 
Also Globe and Mail, Konrad Yakubuski. Pierre Polyev's vow to fire the Bank of Canada governor is reckless. Also Globe and Mail, Gary Mason, the danger Pierre Polyev's corrosive campaign poses to Canada. So it really feels like all of the establishment voices are just shitting themselves, like how, oh, like they're fumfing, like, oh, 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 this is out of line, sir. You've gone too far, which is exactly what the establishment would do if, in fact, there was a shadowy global elite that, like, didn't want the, you, how dare you fuck with the, the, the Bank of Canada. It just goes on and on. And I guess my criticism is that in taking him at face value and actually arguing with him as if this is a rational argument that he's putting forth, you know, like, sir, this is a bad idea. Your rhetoric is overblown. That's not actually what's happening. Like the actual editorial response to Pierre Parliev is like, dude, you're going to govern in a technocratic way that is going to be almost identical to how Stephen Harper governed. If there is an establishment, you are a key member of it and you're posturing. This is bullshit. There's no real policy alternative that you're putting forth. I guess that's said in these pieces. It just feels like there's like a sense of like uh, haplessness in watching this all play out in a way that is just like, it feels like it couldn't be better for his intentions. Yeah, I think what's happening is in some sense they're taking the bait. And what's most shocking about the kind of headlines that you just riffed off from the Globe and Mail is I don't even think you hit all of them. Right. And if I have a media criticism point to make on this, it's just like everyone's writing the same column. I felt like I read the same column over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing kind of new or particularly insightful or original about it. So I don't think just running the same column, making the same points, attacking him over and over again is going to be um, I don't think it's particularly effective and I don't think it's it's particularly insightful either. But, yeah, one thing that came to mind is just like when he's attacking the Bank of Canada, I'm certainly no economics expert, but I think the the kind of fundamental argument he's making is he has concerns over kind of like injecting too much liquidity into the economy and how that might impact inflation. And, you know, that's a valid kind of economic argument that you can put forth and different economists could have a debate about it. But then he takes that kind of reasonable starting point and then pumps it up into something that is kind of far more conspiratorial. And it brought to mind the point you were making about trying to understand the kind of World Economic Forum conspiracy theories through the eyes of the people that support it, which is like they're not fabricating things out of whole cloth, right? It's like they're starting with some sort of kernel or grain of truth and then twisting and contorting it in such an extensive way that you end up in a pretty kind of wild place. And I think that, you know, there's almost kind of something similar happening here where you start out with a very basic kind of economic argument. And then somehow it gets turned into like the Bank of Canada is purposely causing, uh, you know, kind of economic inflation, which is obviously absurd. But yeah, no, I mean, it does seem like the media has been taking the bait a little bit. And I imagine it's kind of playing into Polyev's hands perfectly. I imagine that's what he wants to do. He knows the line that he can walk up to. He knows where it is. He doesn't cross it. And then when everyone loses their heads, he gets to point at them and say, see, the establishment is scared of this movement um, and scared of, of, of my political campaign. Just to kind of conclude by doing something really stupid, I just want to kind of like acknowledge that Davos is gross. You know, to look at what happens at the World Economic Forum, to look at these people who are incredibly privileged and wealthy and pretending to be like, all we care about is saving the world. And to imagine that all of their rhetoric about like, we're going to reset the world for your own good might ultimately not benefit 
me personally as an individual or you personally as an individual to be worried about like you guys smugly think you're going to solve it for everybody, but you're going to limit my ability to take like a plane ride and you're going to limit my ability to run my farm or you're going to limit my ability to, I don't know, get naturopathic medicine. Like within all of these fears is a totally legitimate concern because the truth is they're not totally in good faith and they're not going to go far enough with these reforms to actually reorganize society in a way that's beneficial to the population. So like you're kind of right if you suspect that they're using this opportunity for a power grab, that they are spending tons of public money on a number of initiatives that might not ultimately benefit you. Like there's so much about this that could be sustenance for a really good political discourse and a really good political conflict. If that happened not on planet Cuckoo Land, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely spot on, I think. And then the other thing that just, you know, I think is funny about all of this, and you've kind of touched upon it a little bit, is just the the spokesman for this movement, Pierre Polyev. I mean, he is of the establishment, right? He was voted into um, the House of Commons News 24, 25. It's pretty much all he's done with his life. My understanding of his background before then is he only really worked in politics. I don't think that this is a guy who has any sort of private sector, real world experience outside of the political world. And, um, and you look at his kind of economic policies, like he's like a kind of a libertarian conservative guy. I guarantee you he's got like Hayek on his book shelf and could probably quote it off the top of his head. And the idea that he's going to clutch his pearls and be all worried about Davos, it's like, no, those are those are his people, right? That's where all like the kind of the Hayek lovers uh, gather. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of just like neoliberal politics through and through over there. And I guarantee he doesn't have any sort of serious kind of substantive economic disagreements with that. But it's now become politically convenient for him to point to it as this kind of boogeyman. And he's seizing the opportunity, you know, and and I imagine it has been a boon to his prime ministerial hopes. Yeah. And we seem sort of like as a whole in the Canadian media, completely impotent or incompetent to sort of counter that or, or, or to see it. Yeah. And in some cases are even playing into it, I think. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. 
The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Ryan, it's your first time on the show. We want people to pay attention to things, especially the things that otherwise might not go duly noted. What do you have today? So my duly noted is a, a recent article from Tim Busquet in the Halifax Examiner. Headline on it was RCMP officers privately warned their loved ones that a killer was on the loose but didn't warn the broader public. It comes out of the ongoing mass casualty commission into the Nova Scotia massacre. Yeah, I just think in general that this should be much more of a national scandal than it feels like it is. I think that there should be you know far more attention being paid to it. There are a ton of issues with the Mass Casualty Commission itself. There are a ton of unanswered questions. And I'd just like to highlight the work of Tim Busquet, the Halifax Examiner, Paul Palango, who I know that you have had on the show before. But in general, I think that the, the press in this country has really dropped the ball on this. And in the end, I think we're going to get the kind of information we deserve when, you know, there are still so many unanswered questions because we didn't do enough to push back against official narratives and hold people's feet to the fire. Ah, fuck, man. I I missed that entirely. I followed him. He's been doing an incredible job every day at the Mass Casualty Commission, tweeting all these details, and I missed that one. And that is a huge, like, incredibly revealing detail. They knew enough, and they were worried enough to warn their families, but they didn't warn the public. Man, like, what is wrong with this country that that is not, like, that should be the headline of every newspaper. That tells you everything you need to know about this. Duly noted. Ryan, I want to duly note that most people don't even care about Twitter. They don't. Most people don't care enough about Twitter to hate it. You know who does hate it? I find that the people who are always whining about Twitter are the people who use the hell out of it and who use it for their personal brands. I don't complain about Twitter. I'm not going to pretend. I love Twitter. That's why I'm on it so much. That's why I talk about it so much. (laughs) But, you know, the Elon Musk thing, it's like it's just another wave of people complaining about Twitter and like just these like, where do you read about how shitty Twitter is on Twitter? Why am I talking about this now? Because a big presence on Twitter, Jordan Peterson, he has added to the genre of big names on Twitter complaining about Twitter. And he's added to the genre of big names on Twitter pronouncing that they are leaving Twitter for good. And he, he said the incentive structure of Twitter makes it intrinsically and dangerously insane. He has a certain flair for those types of ridiculous sentences. Mm-hmm. It's dangerously insane. And it's maddening us all. So that's a very high-minded moral stand that Jordan Peterson is taking against Twitter to get away from the endless flood of vicious insult. He doesn't like vicious insults. Of course, he's going to maintain his Twitter account. It'll just be run by his staff from now on. No, what I really want to duly note about this is um, why now? Why is Jordan Peterson leaving Twitter now? Like, what's what, what about this timing can we learn? You know, if you read the Fox News coverage of this, you wouldn't know. But anybody else who's been following this would know that a day before Jordan Peterson announced his departure from Twitter, Jordan Peterson got absolutely trashed on Twitter, absolutely torn apart, 
after he tweeted the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, or one of the covers, in which a, uh, I guess the term is plus-size model, is featured. Yumi knew. And Dr. Jordan B. Peterson commented, sorry, not beautiful. Okay. Uh, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. The replies were pretty funny about uh, how like the deepest level of oppression Jordan Peterson has faced is that he was unable to jerk off to this particular magazine cover. And also I think Jeet here and many others commenting on how if he's this great sentinel and protector of the great Western tradition, Western art and the, and the intrinsic truths of the human condition, then he would know that dudes have liked curvy women for a long, long time. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I don't, you can read the, it, it was one of the worst takes of a guy who's, you know, had a few. And I guess it just got to him this time. There was a really funny one, Ryan, where like one of his fanboys was like, Dr. Peterson, I'm your biggest fan, but like, I find her attractive and my wife has a body that's similar to that and I like it. And, you know, I'm confused. <laughs> Please help me. I don't know what to do. So... That's why Jordan Peterson is leaving Twitter is that we didn't like his take on what's an appropriate bikini model. Yeah, the whole thing was pretty rich, given the fact that, you know, he kind of puts out this unnecessarily like spiteful comment. And then when people uh, when he gets blowback for it, then he talks about how the place is too mean, as if he hadn't been contributing to that with his initial tweet that sparked all of the backlash. Certainly, I'm sure there are going to be some Jordan Peterson fanboys that uh, will miss his presence on the website. I imagine there's much more of us who um, don't find his contributions there particularly illuminating or um, that make the discourse better. But uh, yeah, to your first point, this whole genre of just like people complaining about Twitter on Twitter, you know, it does get uh, a a bit tiring. And uh, yeah, if you don't like the platform, leave. So duly noted. Ryan, uh, did you watch the Junos? I did not, at least not live, <laughs> but I've subsequently seen some <laughs> clips. Uh, not a huge Juno guy usually. Oh man, this is such a problem with like doing a Canadian media criticism show is like, like more than half the time, the content we're discussing is content that neither of us would have even been aware of if we were not going to be co-hosting a Canadian media criticism show. Here is, uh, from the Junos, host Simu Liu from his introductory monologue. I proudly fill my days with Canadian inventions like basketball, tim beads, or insulin. And, and hey, not a lot of people know this, but Canada also invented the pacemaker, which we all desperately need because the Leafs keep giving us heart attacks. I grew up on ketchup chips, roti, and Jamaican beef patties. Because Canada is a place where the government is also our drug dealer. And we're into snowboarding, not waterboarding. And where a woman always has the right to choose. Oh. Uh, you know what I'm going to say. I mean, like, BlogTO wrote, Simulu's emotional I am Canadian speech of the Junos was just what Canada needed. Like, oh, come on, everybody. Like, I, 
I don't mean to just go into repeats here. We know my take on this. Like, if, if you have to resort to, like, what is this weird pastiche where you're putting together basketball, which we have, like, a tangential role, and uh, insulin, and, and Tim Biebs? Like, you're going to throw in a marketing campaign by a Brazilian-to-own donut consortium? You're going to, like, pander with some Leafs references? You're going to cite roti and Jamaican beef patties as, like, uniquely Canadian cultural touch points. You're going to cite the government is also our drug dealer, which I guess is a reference to legal uh, cannabis. But of course, we don't have free pharmacare in Canada. You're going to make a reference to like how we have snowboarding, not waterboarding. Like it's an anti-American thing, like, but like a pretty, a pretty dated reference, I hope. But no, none of those predictable responses for me are why I'm bringing up that. It's, it's the last one. It's the last one, Ryan, where Simu Liu says, and Canada is where a woman always has the right to choose. It's his closer. It seems that the tragedy of the huge, huge setback in women's reproductive rights in America is an occasion to boast in Canada, an occasion to feel good about ourselves. It's so inappropriate. Like, what the fuck, man? That That's what I wanted to talk about, is how wildly insensitive and vulgar and crass that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, I had a few thoughts watching that clip. I mean, one was just, I thought the speech kind of was just a bit corny in general. It also, am I correct in thinking that it was kind of a play on that like famous uh, Molson beer commercial? I have a prime minister, not a president. I speak English and French, not American, and I pronounce it about, not a boot. I can proudly sew my country's flag on my backpack. I believe in peacekeeping, not policing, diversity, not assimilation, and that the beaver is a truly proud and noble animal. The toque is a hat, the Chesterfield is a coach, and it is pronounced said, not Z, Z. It seemed to be he kind of was riffing on that, which, like, to me speaks to this, like, I don't know, this cultural, like, cannibalism that we have in this country where it's, like, 2022 at our our premier award show and, and we're kind of going back, you know, more than two decades. And then to your final point, yeah, the, the women's right to choose. That was the one thing that kind of stuck out at me. It is his closer. And, yeah, it does seem to be you know, probably an an inappropriate way to speak about, you know, what's unfolding in the United States right now, which is obviously, you know, has a lot of people concerned here, obviously far more concerned in the United States, and which is an ongoing fight. It's pathological. We have to stop doing this. Like, this is a week in which so many Canadians are terrified. Like, if you are a Muslim who knows about the Quebec mosque shooting and knows about the family that was mowed down in London, Ontario, you don't feel safe after what happened in Buffalo. If you're a black Canadian, you don't feel safe after what happened in Buffalo. If you're a Jew, knowing that two synagogues dealt with mass shooters, you don't feel safe. We know this great replacement theory. We know that it is a theory that implicates Jews, Muslims, and black people and inspires people to try to kill all of us. 
And the fact that we're on the north side of this border offers us no feeling of safety or, or protection. So that's how we're feeling after what happened in Buffalo. Here's how Catherine McKenna was feeling. Former member of parliament, former minister of environment and climate. This is what she said after Buffalo. Reading the news today, I'm feeling very fortunate to live in Canada, a diverse and tolerant country that values freedom while respecting human rights. We aren't perfect. And building our country is an ongoing project. But I wouldn't choose anywhere else heart emoji, Canadian flag emoji. Like, it's pathological. We have to cut this shit out and grow the fuck up. It's symptomatic of something that we see all the time, which is, I think, you know, this idealized perception of ourselves as a country that many Canadians have. But then this tendency that we we kind of look south of the border, we look at some of the, the crazier aspects of American culture, whether it's, you know, related to something like firearm ownership or, or even just their political culture more broadly. And we kind of like turn up our noses and we have an air of superiority and think, well, at least we're not as bad as them. The McKenna tweet was a, a perfect example of that. And as you know, was rightly pointed out by wide swaths of people. It's like since McKenna has been in office, we've had a rash of, you know, terror attacks. That's what they are, far-right terror attacks in this country targeting racialized people, just like we just saw in Buffalo. To think in some sense that we are immune of this or that we don't have a history of it ourselves is absurd. My main concern, at least, someone who who kind of reports on this stuff and has, has tried to dig into it fairly deeply is that, You know, even when I broke the Patrick Matthews story out of Winnipeg, there was a sense of, well, you know, we don't have a serious problem here. You know, it can't happen here, that type of thing. Like the sense of superiority lulls us into a false sense of security and complacency. And that absolutely needs to be pushed back against if we are going to properly confront this threat, because it is here and it's not going anywhere. And my fear is that it's only going to get worse. I mean, it's not even about, oh, it happens here too. Like, we generate it here. We validate it and we launder it here. Bashir Mohammed pointed out that, like, it was not very long ago in 2017, Post Media published an op-ed by Martin Calicott. Here's the headline, Canada replacing its population, a case of willful ignorance, greed, excess, and political correctness. This was white replacement theory in a Vancouver Sun op-ed five years ago in a mainstream newspaper from the biggest newspaper chain in Canada. And as soon as Bashir Mohammed linked to that, they've left it online since 2017. But then it was a bad day for white replacement theory after the Buffalo mass shooting. And Bashir Mohammed links to this and the cowards over at Post Media, they unpublished this article with no trace or explanation or apology for the fact that it ran in the first place. And I think the other thing to point out is like, it was called out at the time. I remember when this op-ed was published and I remember there was pushback back in 2017, but they held their ground and they kept it up. And it's only now five years later where they want to kind of retroactively go back and erase it and memory hole it. But, um, you know, thankfully there are screenshots and like you look at that op-ed and it was, it was straight white nationalist talking points laundered through an op-ed in one of the largest 
or I guess the largest newspaper chain in this country. And like, look at that. And then what's the difference between that and someone like Tucker Carlson in the United States, you know, laundering great replacement theory on on his webcast? It's kind of the exact same thing, um, perhaps not to the same scale and scope. But yeah, we do. We, We do have a serious problem with it here to think that it isn't homegrown, that we aren't generating it, that we aren't a part of this problem. Uh, let alone somehow immune to it. It just shows a very kind of tenuous connection with with the facts. I'll tell you with this one, I do maybe like err on the side of trying to see things from people's points of view, even if they seem really radical. With this one, it's just such a dumb theory. Like, it's such a, like, what's going on? Like, Jews are leading this plot to dilute. Like, we don't like Anglo-Saxon, like, they're too strong. So we're... We're pushing governments towards like increased immigration so that like more Muslims could come, like as if Jewish political power is is really focused on opening the gates for more more Muslim immigration. What are we trying to do? Why are we trying to like it's 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 the stupidest theory of all of them. Like it, it doesn't make a lick of sense. And yet it is media that people get intoxicated by. And they tell you so. They leave behind notes that tell you how and when they came to believe this stupid shit. And that's not just an Ezra Levant thing. That's not just Lauren Southern or Faith Goldie talking about white replacement theory on The Rebel, as they did. That's something that you can read in post-media. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what one thing that just came to mind when you, when you mentioned Southern is just like the amount of kind of like far-right darlings or figures that Canada has produced in recent years. It's considerable, which again speaks to the point that we are generating this stuff internally as a country. It's not being you know, imported in from the United States. It's it's a problem here. There was a leak of the online forum Iron March a couple of years back. The amount of Canadian foot traffic that they had on that website, which was like the kind of premier location for, you know, fascist politics and, and white nationalism online was, was massive. I think we need to have a more serious conversation about this as a country. And, you know, and then you see comments like McKenna's, who's, you know, obviously like a very powerful politician in this country. And it makes you realize that like the powers that be, I don't think they're ready for this conversation. I don't think that they have any grasp on the, on the reality of the situation. And the longer we put this off, really reckoning with this as a country, the worse it's going to be. What is the value of the contribution that McKenna made there? Like what is, what is the even potential upside of stepping in at a moment of tragedy and trauma to say like, well, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that. Like, even if it were true. It would still be gross. It would still suck. That's Shortcuts. Ryan, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com, where we are firing uh, with all cylinders, backbench every week, wag the dug every week leading up to the Ontario election. Commons is doing incredible work on their season on the war in Afghanistan. It goes on and on. Check it out at canadaland.com. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read what you send. Ryan, where can people read your work? Where can people find you? You can find all my reporting in the Winnipeg Free Press, and you can find me on Twitter at RK underscore Thorpe. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. 
theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, our sale is still on for not much longer. The usual $9 a month is now $1 a month for the first three months. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.